Welcome back to Parkside Greens Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Steve here, excited to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke on this first day of fall 2022 uh, with the cooler fall temperatures I'm sure you're experiencing. You know, on the first day of summer, way back 36 years ago, June 21st, 1986, I pledged to take Susan Barbara East to be my lawfully wedded wife and among other things to love her honor her, and cherish her until death separates us. As a 23-year-old, I think in one sense, I knew who Sue was, and I knew what I was getting into with marrying her. But as time went on, I learned much more about who Sue was and what marriage entails. And it's not an exact analogy, but I wonder if it might have been a bit like that with Jesus's disciples. You see, in Luke 5, we write about how Jesus called Peter, James, and John to trade in catching fish for catching people, catching men. And, and right on the spot, they left everything and they followed him. We also read about how Jesus called a tax collector named Levi or Matthew to, and asked him to follow him. And again, leaving everything, Levi arose and followed Jesus. In a sense, I think these disciples knew who Jesus was and they had a sense of what they were getting into with him and following him. But as time went on, they learned much more about who Jesus was and what following him entailed. And that's the focus of this week's passage in Luke 9. It's all about following Jesus the Christ. We're going to study following Jesus the Christ under three main headings. Number one, following a rejected suffering Christ, verses 18 to 26a. Secondly, following a majestic, glorious Christ, in verses 26b to 45. And thirdly, how to follow Jesus, in verses 46 to 50. So we begin then with following a rejected, suffering Christ. That The setting is given in verse 18. Jesus is praying alone, though his disciples are nearby. And he often prayed, didn't he, before important events. We've already seen that. So we're almost kind of anticipating something big might be coming. And sure enough, it does. As Jesus comes out of his time of prayer, he poses a weighty question to his disciples. Kind of like one of those weighty questions we, we all ask ourselves at different times. Uh, questions like, what's our purpose in life? And why is there suffering? And what happens after death? But Jesus' weighty question is about who he is. Jesus starts by asking his disciples, what are the people of the day? What do they think about me? What, what, what are the, who do the crowds say that I am? And there were three popular options. They're the same ones that Herod had pondered earlier in the chapter, you'll recall. Number one, John the Baptist. Number two, Elijah. And number three, one of the prophets of old who has arisen, come back to life. And and then Jesus asks his disciples, but you, you, plural, who do you all say that I am? And Peter doesn't take any of the three popular options, and instead he answers that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now we've already seen this term in the gospel. In Luke 2.11, the angel told the shepherds that unto them was born that day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
And in Luke 2.26, we're told that the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Luke 4.41 tells us that demons knew that Jesus was the Christ. But this is the first time that any of his disciples has identified Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed one, the Christ of God. Now, Jesus didn't want to go public yet with his identity as the Christ, so he strictly charged and commanded his disciples not to tell anyone. Right? First, they must learn what kind of Christ, what kind of Messiah Jesus is. He wouldn't be a political or military deliverer from Roman oppression. Rather, Jesus would be a rejected, suffering Christ. He would suffer many things in the days ahead. And surprisingly, Jesus won't be rejected by Israel's enemies. He'll be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, he tells them. He's going to be killed, and on the third day, he'll be raised. Do not expect the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem to embrace me. They're going to reject me. It's going to be a tough road ahead with lots of suffering and death from which he would be raised. Then in verse 23, Jesus widens his teaching to all who were within earshot. Mark says it included the crowd as well as Jesus' disciples. Let me tell all of you what it means to follow me. It's not about just receiving healing and receiving teaching and receiving food and seeing miracles. It's also about denying yourself, not being the captain of your ship, not calling the shots of your life. I'm telling you up front that I'm going to be rejected and suffer and be killed. So if you sign up for following me, Jesus is saying, you need to be prepared for the cost, even to the point of death, taking up your cross. Any of you who are focused on saving your life in this world, you're going to lose it in the end. But any of you who lose your life for my sake, Jesus says, We'll save it in the end. I'm telling you, it's going to be hard, but with great reward, ultimately. When the going gets tough and the chips are down and I suffer many things and I'm rejected and I'm killed, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you. You can't sign up just to be a fair-weather disciple and affiliate with me only when times are easy. That's the tough news. But the good news is that if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. <laughs> and we know that even if you gain the whole world by following the ways of the world, it would be a terrible trade-off if you lost and forfeited your life, your, your eternal relationship with God. So any of you considering coming after me or following me needs to know that you will be following a suffering and rejected Christ. And you also need to know that you'll be following a majestic and glorious Christ. Right there in the middle of verse 26, we see this sharp transition from the reality that Jesus is a rejected, suffering Christ to the other reality that Jesus is also a majestic, glorious Christ which we'll see in verses 26b to verse 45. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that after suffering many things, and being rejected and being killed, that on the third day, 
he'd be raised. You see, in the future, Jesus, the Son of Man, will come in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. In fact, Jesus says, there are some, not all, but some standing there in his hearing that day who wouldn't taste death until they saw the kingdom of God. Now, there's lots of debate about what Jesus meant by this saying, but I think a big part of the answer lies in the fact that right after Jesus makes this statement, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels, the very next sentence tells about how a week after these sayings, after saying this, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And again, we're anticipating something big, right? He's, they're praying, and sure enough, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white, literally bright as a flash of lightning. Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and Mark says that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white. Jesus' prophecy of verse 27 had been fulfilled, right? Some of those who were standing there a week ago, Peter, James, and John, had now been privileged to see a glimpse of God's glorious kingdom, a preview of what King Jesus may look like when he comes in glory someday. But for now, Jesus was still there talking with Moses and Elijah, who they also appeared in glory, and they spoke with Jesus about his upcoming departure, uh, perhaps his death and resurrection and ascension. And note what it says, that this would not be forced on Jesus. This is what Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. He would be fulfilling the very reason he came in accomplishing this. Now, in the meantime, Peter, James, and John had been heavy with sleep, and, and as they awakened, they saw the glory of Jesus, and, and they also saw two men with him who were somehow recognizable to them as Moses and Elijah. Mark tells us that, in fact, the three disciples were terrified at this moment, and they didn't know what to say. But, of course, Peter blurts something out. He, he suggests that they make three tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, maybe stay on the mountain a bit longer. Now, Jesus does not reply to this suggestion from Peter, but the answer comes from God the Father, who was present in a cloud that overshadowed or enveloped them. The disciples were afraid, it says, and we can understand that, can't we? What was going on was not an everyday occurrence. It was more like a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. In fact, decades later, in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, Peter was still talking about this experience. The voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Herod and the crowd's ideas that Maybe Jesus was a risen Elijah or a prophet of old, maybe like Moses, were clearly wrong. Jesus is standing there talking with Elijah and Moses. Instead, Jesus was the Father's very Son, God's chosen one. Jesus isn't just an equal alongside the prominent lawgiver Moses and the prominent prophet Elijah. Because he is God's Son, he should be listened to above all. For the time being, the three disciples kept this whole incident to themselves, which is what Jesus told them to do, according to Mark and Matthew. They had seen a glimpse of God's glorious kingdom, 
and they would get another glimpse into God's majesty the very next day. When they finished their hike down from the mountain, a great crowd was waiting for Jesus, as usual. One man's voice from the crowd stood out as he he begged Jesus to take a look at his only child, his only child, a son. The, The man explained that a spirit would often seize and convulse and shatter his son, causing him to cry out and foam at the mouth. Mark adds further detail that the spirit made the boy mute and often cast the boy into fire and into water to destroy him. The father further explained that Jesus' disciples had been unable to cast out the spirit, and that led Jesus to bemoan how he had to bear with that faithless and, and twisted generation. I mean, despite all that Jesus had already done, Most people, including his disciples, had very little faith, not enough to cast out this evil spirit. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. It did come out of him, and the boy was healed. We can imagine how that boy's life and the father's life and any other relatives, a part of the family, would just never be the same. There'd be no more being seized or convulsed or shattered. No more crying out, no more foaming at the mouth, no more being thrown into the fire or the water. Luke reports that all the onlookers were astonished at the majesty of God. Jesus was indeed a majestic, glorious Christ. But while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, You let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They love me now. (laughs) They're marveling. They're astonished. But it won't last long. Let it sink in. Remember what I told you that is ahead for me. I'm a rejected and suffering Messiah. Now, at the time, his disciples didn't understand Jesus' saying, which was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. When you don't understand, normally you you might ask for further explanation, but his disciples were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant, maybe because at some level they didn't want to know more about the hard story of what was ahead. But they needed to know more about who Jesus was and how to follow him, which we'll see in our final section, verses 46 to 50, how to follow Jesus. Right on the heels of Jesus' glorious transfiguration, witnessed by Peter, James, and John, and right on the heels of the great crowd being astonished when Jesus healed the boy, marveling at everything Jesus did, the disciples get into an argument about which one of them was the greatest. (laughs) It's a common human argument, right? Who's the greatest of all time in a sport? The goat. Who's the greatest president? Who's the greatest actor or actress? Who's the greatest in our organization, our company? Who's the greatest in our family? But with them, it was about who was Jesus' greatest disciple. And I'm guessing that no one won the argument that day. We aren't told. But what we are told is that Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. They, They still weren't getting it about how to follow Jesus. So he took a child, he took a little kid and put him by his side. 
Now, in the first century, most people regarded children as unimportant. You remember later in Luke 18, we'll see how the disciples seemed to view the little ones as unnecessary interruptions when people were bringing them to be touched and blessed by Jesus. But Jesus views things differently, and he goes far, so far as to say, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. In God's perspective, attending to a low-status child is a great thing. The lesson is that he who is least among you is the person who is great. Don't follow the world's way of measuring people like they probably were in their argument. Take on lowly tasks and care for those of little status. The way to follow Jesus is as a humble servant, not as a proud boaster. And lastly, the way to follow Jesus is graciously, not judgmentally. John told Jesus about someone who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and he added that he and the others tried to stop this guy because he didn't follow with them, probably meaning he wasn't part of their inner circle of 12. But Jesus told John not to stop that man because the one who isn't against you is for you in a sense. Mark 9.39 adds Jesus' statement that no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Right? Someone who casts out demons in Jesus' name is more likely Jesus' friend than his enemy. Seems like they're on the right side. So the, the 12 were to focus on their tasks, to run in their lane and not be quick to judge others who followed Christ but didn't happen to belong to their group. See, the work of God's kingdom extended beyond their immediate circle. There is a lot to consider here. Uh, we're just going to close with three possible applications, but I know you'll discuss more in your small groups as well. Number one, count the cost. Count the cost. Right? We follow, we follow a rejected suffering Christ. So we need to be prepared to be rejected and suffer as his followers. We never want to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Number one, count the cost. Number two, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. We follow a majestic, glorious Christ. We, we get a glimpse of this as we read about his transfiguration. God the Father declares that Jesus is his son, his chosen one. So we need to listen to Jesus above all. Thirdly, follow humbly and graciously. Follow humbly and graciously. We don't want to have arguments, maybe even just in the pride of our own minds, about who's the greatest. Jesus is the greatest, period. End of discussion. And we don't want to be quick to judge or, or criticize those from other groups who follow Jesus. We are called to follow humbly and graciously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that sometimes we're like those first 12 disciples. We, we don't fully grasp what it means for us to follow a rejected suffering Messiah. So teach us, we pray, to deny ourselves and never be ashamed of Jesus and his words. 
We also confess that we know Jesus is a majestic, glorious Messiah. And even though we know that, we don't always listen to him the way that we should. We confess sometimes we argue over who's the greatest among us, when really Jesus is the only great one. And we confess that sometimes we wrongly criticize or judge those who are faithful followers of Jesus but aren't part of our particular group. Teach us, we pray, to be humble and gracious followers of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.